I always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the wide stance, taking the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Now Ballesteros. With a putt that could win him the 113th British Open. Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast. My name is Lawrence Donegan. Uh, no huggy on the introduction today. We have a podcast with uh, Paul Reed Harrington, uh, which we recorded straight to file. But before we play you that, uh, I just want to do a little bit of uh, selling. Uh, McKellar number three is out and available. Uh, you can go to McKellarMagazine.com. That's McKellarMagazine.com and you'll be able to buy issue three. You'll also be able to buy issues one and two. Uh, you can buy issues one, two, and three. We call that the full McKellar, a very popular item in our store. Uh, you can also uh, take a look at our T-shirts, uh, high quality, very nice, um, so I'm told. Uh, I, I know golf uh, golf magazines or golf journals might not be at the top of your priority list right now, and that, that's fine, but if, uh, if you're looking to escape, if you're looking to uh, immerse yourself in the world of golf and uh, great golf writing, then you might want to consider... McKellar. Uh, that is McKellarMagazine.com. That's probably enough of me selling. Uh, let's get on with the show. Porrie Harrington, how are you doing? Uh, well, considering, uh, I suppose I'm doing okay. Yeah, this, uh, what is this social uh, distancing and staying at home. Yeah, it's pretty good here, but, uh, you know, obviously I've got an older mother, so I worry for her. Uh, she's outside the two miles so i can't visit her well i shouldn't be visiting her anyway she's over 70 so uh, that's that would be my concern but you know my immediate family here at home are uh, all pretty okay uh, i was good is, is caroline sick of you yet that's the that's the big question really <laughs> uh, it's a big house we can move around yes. <laughs> uh, yeah there, there's a few yeah a few warnings that i've done a lot of spring cleaning put it like that keeping the good yeah, very good. Yeah, I, for you, I put a thing out on Twitter saying, anybody get any questions for you? And the overwhelming, uh, overwhelming uh, was about the uh, Twitter swing stuff. Uh, yeah. Are you surprised that they react? I mean, a hundred thousand views minimum on every on every video. I think. Well, I I, I love coaching. I really enjoy my programs, looking at the guys and trying to figure out what will help them. You know, every everybody who plays with me. I'll give you an example. Last year, I had a, I broke my wrist. I went to try and play uh, the Florida Swing. Couldn't play. So I spent three weeks at the Bears Club uh, as a guest to Jack Nicholas, Just hanging out. I could do a bit of putting. But basically, if any member made eye contact with me, they were getting a lesson. That, that's I like teaching. So you, 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 and that's kind of the way it is. If you, if you let me in, I'm going to give you a lesson. Uh, I, I, Bob Carnes uh, in Pete County who I work with now I always say about them you know they love coaching so much that if they pulled up in a petrol station and you went in and say you were paying the bill and you came out they'd be fine they'd have found somebody there to give a lesson to in the forecourt and I'm a bit like that the um, although some uh, we had Dennis Pugh on a bit and he, he refuses to do mm. uh, Twitter stuff on, on the swing I mean some coaches don't like it I think it's uh, uh, yeah. They're, they're, they're coaches, though. I, I'm, I'm not... 
the one thing I try and put out when I'm giving these lessons, I'm trying to coach the 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 casual golfer, the weekend warrior. Uh, you're looking at like real coaches. There, people are coming individually to them, and they're working on swing planes and things like that. I think there is a little bit of confusion. What's put out there in the media? What's put like if you see a lesson in a golf magazine, okay? There's an overall assumption first and foremost. If you're reading that lesson and you think it applies to you, you must have a good grip. Because if, if you don't have a good grip, you need individual coaching. You need to go to a PGA Pro and either sort out your grip or else individually deal with the matchups you need to do. General coaching is not for you. What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to do the general coaching. I'm trying to throw it out there to people who only play at the weekend give them an idea of what they more or less shouldn't be doing, more so than what they should be doing. Well, sometimes it's what they should be doing. I, I, I really wish I wasn't coaching my competitors. I, I, I don't want to give out the absolute pearls of wisdom, but uh, you know, at some stage, some of these experiences of mine will get out there. But I, I'm really just I'm keen to help uh, people who get mixed up, really mixed up in this game. Like I'm fascinated by there's so many falsehoods in golf like keeping your head down like staying still like not moving like thinking that you know turning your shoulders is going to add anything to a 50 year old's golf swing it is thus not going to add a single thing it's like literally to turn your shoulders you'll end up cheating to get your shoulders to turn and you'll lose by trying to turn your shoulders just use your hands and arms like you would swing in any stick and they'll drive your body into the right positions there's just it just frustrates me that and it is actually social media that frustrates me in terms of, uh, you know, the stuff you see put out on social media is for elite golfers. It is not for the rank and file, nine handicap golfer. It's it's just not for them. They don't need to lay the club down in the downswing. I can swear to you, if you show me a nine handicapper who's working on laying the club down in the downswing, which you'll see all over Instagram. Maybe that's what I follow on Instagram, but you'll see all these things. That's only for the like juniors who are really intent on becoming good. It ain't for the the casual golfer who just wants to hit it an extra 10 yards and enjoy his golf. Yeah, Patrick's right about that, Lawrence. Back in the day when I was uh, the instruction editor at Golf Digest, I was there for eight years. And when I arrived, the average handicap of the average reader was 17.8. And when I, when I left eight years later, it was 17.8. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a difficult business trying to make people better. Yeah, well... You, you would understand. For me, it's not you. You played back in the day, and I would consider you're 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 in the same vintage of me in terms of golf. Nineteen ninety seems to be the breaking point. Now I can only tie it to Nick Fallow. So Nick Fallow had a big, long, flowing golf swing, and it, with David Ledbetter, he tidied that up, tightened it up through the end of the eighties. But say nineteen ninety, people tried to explain what they did, and they got into a lot of. You know, it's resistance, it's holding the hips, it's doing mm. all, all these things. Things that, but Phil, Nick Fowler's six foot four, he's a big man. He already had a flowing golf swing and they curtailed it to maybe he played 80%. It was great for Nick Fowler. He became the world number one. But the explanation of what he did doesn't tally with the likes of Jack Nicholas, who had a like huge hip turn, shoulder turn, you know, uh, and Sam Snead. Uh, uh, there's a video posted on social media of... Uh, it could be Fred Astaire. I'm not really sure which one it was. Doing a dance and hitting golf balls. Mm. It's in black and white. Yeah, you might have seen it. Yeah, I, think that's, I think that's Gene Kelly. Anyway. Gene oh, Kelly. There yeah. you go. 
It's the same guy. Every amateur golfer copied that. They'd be far better. Every like when I say amateur, I'm talking over five handicap. If they copied, if they could do what he did in that video, they'd be fantastic golfers. Being able to move and flick the ball with your hands and arms and wrists, just being able to hit it as you move around will make you a lovely swinger and ball striker. So when I see a guy walk onto the tee box, and this is where, I'm sorry I've been a bit long-winded, John, and you'll notice, if you started the game, say, pre, pre-95, pre-1990, I guarantee you when you stand over the ball, you will move your feet and waggle the club. You'll yeah. have a couple of, like a Hogan waggle, well, not maybe as big, and you'll definitely do a little bit of dancing with your feet, bobbing them up and down. Now, if you started the game 95 onwards, when the likes of Adam Scott and Tiger start coming on the scene, there's a perception that they're very still over the ball. So mm-hmm. a lot of people who started the game later in their life, they don't move their feet, and they have, they're rigid over the ball. The club doesn't move. So literally, when I see a guy in a pro-am, I can tell when they started playing the game. I can tell, actually can tell what handicap they are by the way they carry the golf bag, we, or how they tee it up. We all know that, but... Pre-95, they waggle the club. After 95, they very still over the ball, which doesn't help you swing a stick. No. And the strange thing is, though, Padraig, at, at your level, it's always intrigued me that, that there's always been you know, thousands of followers. I mean, Faldo's a perfect example. He can, and Ledbetter, they kind of changed the way things were done. But nobody at your level ever became the best player in the world by copying some other guy. I mean, that everybody who's been number one has done it their own way and done it the best way for them. They don't do it by yeah, I, somebody else. I, yeah, but I think they start off with their own natural mannerisms. Like you could go with, say, the Shambo is a perfect example. So, you know, why don't we go with the, the one plane swing, the golfing machine swing? Mm. Well, we don't really know whether it works because clearly it's worked for uh, Bryson. But he played for 17 years with a big flowing golf swing. So how much has that affected the golfing machine. He didn't start off with the golfing machine. Now, mm. secondly, he's one individual using this. Maybe Bryson is the most talented player ever to play the game, and this, this is, you know, this is not the right way to go for everybody. Like, I, I'm pretty sure if you were an amateur golfer playing off 14 handicap and you tried to play that way, you will not hit. You know, you'll struggle to hit the ball 170 yards in the yeah. air, let alone. I think, I think you taught yourself. <laughs> yes, but, but as I said, Bryson played a different way and. It doesn't matter why he thinks of the golf machine. Ultimately, those 17 years playing the other way has had some influence, as it did on Saldo, and as it does on all these world number ones who have their own way of doing it. But yes, at some stage, you're going to start, you're going to learn a little bit from other people, watch a little oh, bit of, of other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they're not You're right. Yeah. right. Nobody is copying Colin Montgomery's golf swing. Nobody's copying, like, we. you know, you're not. It seems impossible to try. I could try tried to copy it, but like DJ's position at impact, that's an individual thing. Yeah. There's very few people would have the strength to swing the golf club with as little hip turn as Brooks Kepler. Very few people. And then there'd be, again, very few people would have the, the subtlety in their body to make a turn like Rory McIlroy does. And, and maybe Rory's well suited to make that turn because he's five foot eight. And if you were a six foot four, you probably couldn't copy Rory's swing. So the the reality of golf swings, and I know there's books written on this, you're probably better off trying to copy somebody who has the same body shape as you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you. You're a good example of all that. I mean, in terms of somebody that made a you know a pretty massive change. I mean, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but when you turned pro after your three Walker Cups and all the rest of it, I mean, the strength of your game was within 75 yards. And you, you had everything else, you had the, you know, the mental capacity to play well at that level and all the rest of it. But you lacked the ball striking to be able to compete at the highest level. And Bob Torrance was the one who gave you that. But you now, or you became a completely different player from the one that played in the three Walker Cups. I mean, is that fair to say or am I exaggerating slightly? It, it, no, no, you're, you're, you could, you're exa- certainly exagger- not exaggerating in terms of uh, my golf stick. No, uh, who knows though, maybe everything that's made me good has been the mental game and the short game and the fact I could keep doing it. But like when I turned pro, I could only hit a low cut. I could not draw the ball. Mm-hmm. And so I played three Walker Cups and I could not draw the ball. And John Jakes the month before I started on the tour, we have to go to an orientation back in the day. Uh, it was called the McGregor Week. And he taught me how to draw the ball. Hmm. He said, oh, you just open the door, close the door, and do it six inches before the golf ball. So he just got me looking at the ground six inches, 12 inches before the golf ball. He put me on a side slope. Like anybody listening to this, if you want to draw the ball, practice with the ball above your feet in a side hmm. slope, yeah. and you'll draw the ball. After 25 balls, you'll get the confidence to aim right and pull it, pull, draw it, draw it, whatever it takes. John Jacobs did that. I gained 30 yards of distance overnight with John Jacobs in that week. And I remember I played the first year, and I hit it with a 40-yard draw. Like, I hit it miles right with it. And everybody was looking at me like, you're mad. And I was just the happiest person in the world because I, I literally couldn't draw the ball up to that. Yeah. But yeah. then, as you say, in 98, I hit a wall in terms of I, I played the Olympic club uh, the US Open, and I felt I played as good as I could tee to green. I felt I played exceptional short game as I would would have always at that time, and I finished 27th. And I knew, well, this is as good as it gets unless I do something, and, and Bob Torrance was that something. Uh, I knew every player he worked with was a ball striker. And, and we were made for each other. Bob always said this. He waited for me to come along, he said, because I was the first guy that would stand in the range with 12 hours with him, because Bob yeah. would do that. And secondly, I had the short game to handle the step backwards you take when yeah. you work on your own swing. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. Here, um, in fairness, Porig, you did win in your first year in the European Tour, so you weren't exactly a chopper. Um, well, I, look, I had the mental game, but I did change from hitting a, a, a cut, a low cut to a big high draw. Uh, 30 yards I gained overnight, plus I got a driver. What year was 1996? The great big bird that came out. Is that is that right? Next, uh, I hit it an extra thirty yards overnight. Here, imagine uh, how confident I was. Uh, before I, uh, we've, I want to ask you about the Ryder Cup and all that, but we'll leave, we've gone down the rabbit hole of golf things, which is great. And golf teachers, uh, Bob Torrance, um, Huggy knew him great. I knew him pretty well. I mean, I want to ask you about uh, Torrance, and you worked with Genkis recently. I, I mean, I want you to talk about Torrance, but I'd like you. I mean, what? Genkis and Torrance, uh, what similarities did they have and, and what differences were there? I mean, Genkis is very much the modern era and Bob, I guess you would call Bob old school, though maybe you have a different opinion on that. Tell us about Bob. Any good Bob stories? What was, uh, where was his genius? Well, first thing I'd say about Bob is I was, I suppose, kind of a young man, you know, 30 years of age, say, just before I was 30 starting with Bob. And Bob was in his 60s to 70s when I worked with him. I always thought, said, I'd love to be like this man when I get to his age. 
you've never been around a person with a better personality and you know enthusiasm and excitement for golf. Now I didn't know Bob was was an ex-alcoholic. I didn't know Bob in those times, so you know I knew Bob the ex-alcoholic, and he was just a great person to be around. Great stories, great fun. And to be honest, I worked with Pete Cowan, and I worked with George, and I, I, I they're all the same. They just love golf. They will coach anybody, anywhere. They think golf 24-7, and it's just phenomenal. The best story about Bob Torrance, and it is pretty pretty true, and this shows how obsessive. Obviously, for your listeners here, the Masters in Great Britain and Ireland is the start of the season. So when the Masters is on TV, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, back in the day, in the 80s, 90s, like you sat in, this was, you waited the whole winter for it. So Bob was coaching a Danish player who came to see him. Mm-hmm. And he happened to come to see him on the Wednesday, Thursday of the Masters. So on the, on the Friday, I think. So on the Thursday evening, Bob, is, Bob has come back from coaching for 10 hours. And he sits down and, you know, starts watching the Masters. And this Danish kid, he's 19, 20 years of age. He's so keen, he starts asking questions during the coverage. Now, Bob's waiting six months for this. And he starts asking about questions. <laughs> Bob. Bob knows this is an issue. So I, I think John will know this story, but probably both of you know this story. Yeah. So it is true. Bob turns to him and says, will you have a coffee? And he says, oh yeah, I'll definitely have a coffee. So he said, June, make the coffee. So June runs out to make the coffee, but Bob goes out, misses a bit of the master, and they decide to put a sleeping tablet into the, <laughs> into the coffee. Now, in their wisdom, they said they better get the job done. And they put two sleeping tablets into the coffee. Now, these sleeping tablets back in the day, they were a hypnot. They weren't just sleeping tablets. They were the full Monty of a sleeping tablet. So they knocked the guy out. He drank the coffee and seemingly he sat bolt upright, awake, <laughs> but obviously asleep. And, and they'd never seen this. So he's like, he's conked out there. So they're looking at him and thinking, Bob said, I think we killed them. I think we killed them. <laughs> and of course, June is like panicking. You know, should we call the, should we call the, the ambulance? Should we call it? And they, they decide in their wisdom, nah, should we just put him into the bed? Sure, if he's dead, he'll be dead in the morning. And we'll watch the golf. <laughs> the, young, the young lad woke up at three o'clock the following afternoon. <laughs> Comes out and Bob and June are sitting there. And he looks at them and he goes to Bob. Oh, I'm so sorry for sleeping out. I can't believe I slept that long. And Bob is just going, ah, it's the sea air up here in Scotland, you know, it puts you to sleep. Brilliant. Here, I, I know it's, I mean, it's a career of, or a long time, 10, whatever many years with Bob. I, I, I mean, can you just distill it a little bit, even in a couple of minutes? I mean, what, what was he about? What was his, what was his, philo- I'm philosophy is a terrible word, but I mean, what was his idea? You know, his fundamental Champs idea. Need. Sam Snead. He, like, he, he, he worshipped Hogan. No doubt about it. But he taught Sam Snead. You know, he loved Hogan, yes. And he, he spent all day watching the two of them. But it was more Sam Snead for, for Bob. He wanted a real a pause and a squat to the right of target. So he wanted at the top of the backswing, he wanted you to hold, hold your back to the target push your left knee out and down your shoulder, left shoulder down and out towards the ball. He wanted that delayed action. That was his big, big key, a pause and a delayed. He liked rotation in the backswing, 
which probably that's the one thing you would see changed today. We don't rotate the club open. He definitely wants rotation of the forearm, not the hands. Mm. But he wanted a pause, a squat at the start of the downswing. And then, which is pretty much what everybody's doing now anyway. That That's not going to change in the golf swing. But certainly the rotation is the one thing that has changed over the years. He definitely wanted a forearm rotation back and down through impact. Whereas a lot, because of Dustin Johnson and others, a lot of people have gone from stronger club face in the backswing, held strong all the way down and then released through impact. So uh, that would be the big change with Bob. But everything was Sneed and Hogan. And, you know, we've watched videos, the rhythm, the separation of the knees at the start of the downswing. Uh, you know, that's that's so much of it. Now, the great thing about Bob Torrance, and I was fascinated with this, he worked with Lee Westwood for a while. And I, I was heavily working. And so Lee started with him. And, of course, I'd be saying, well, what what, you, what did you tell Lee to do? And he told Lee Westwood to do the opposite of what he was telling me. <laughs> and I'm going, what's the story with that? You know, it, it seemed to go totally against the grain. And Bob had a great saying, you can only take one sip of the medicine at a time. And with anybody he worked with, he would tell them something to do. But it mightn't be what his master plan was. His master plan was much further down the road, but he knew he needed to get this done first in order to get to the next point. He didn't jump in. And I think any skilled coach, this is the, if you're a good golf coach, you know where to start. You know what, what you fix that has a knock-on effect that fixes other things down the way rather than jumping in and fixing what's obvious. Because uh, I would have jumped in and fixed something else. You know, I would have said, oh, why don't you work this and this or do that? Bob, one sip of the medicine, you've got to do this. Yeah, I think that that's a, certainly in my limited experience. When I was at Golf Digest in the States, I was lucky enough to deal with, uh, you know, Hank Haney and David Ledbetter and Peter Costas, the, the absolute top teachers in the country. And that is a common factor in all of them. I would sit down and talk to them after they'd given a lesson to somebody and, and have them talk through it. And that's exactly how their minds worked. You know, every one, just yeah. about every one of them. There was something to be done that would get them to the next point and then they could do this and then on and on it went. It wasn't a case of you went from A to Z right away. You no. went. You had to work through the alphabet to get to Z, you know. I, I can't tell you how many times Bob Torrance said this to me. And, and like, literally we'd sit down after day's work we sit in his house and he nearly he started so many conversations if a young Lee Trevino walked into his house would Bob would say this would I have the ability to know to leave him alone and it, it, mm. it actually that was a, a fear of Bob's life in, 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 in coaching was if he met natural talent would he have the ability not to disrupt it to make it look better and, and you, we won't talk, say natural talent, but if we met an unorthodox golf swing, you know, so many coaches, as you said, just because, you know, we're, we're getting better at this in, in the golf world. But there was a time that if it didn't look right, people tried to change it. Whereas the reality is, if it's striking the ball well and consistent, you can repeat it. That's all you need. Uh, and Bob was, was back. Now, we're talking back in the day. He was saying, you know, would he, and it was a fear of his. Would he have the ability not to jump in? if a young Lee Trevino presented himself, and clearly Lee Trevino was the best striker of a golf ball in his era. You know, you, you can argue there was other people as good as him, but he was the best at striking a golf ball. So, 
he has a little bit of different goals. He's like he, he fully moves his foot and it, like he takes his foot off the ground. He has lots of things going on, lots of individual things to him. And would you just turn around and go, yeah, you're good enough. Let's yeah. let's just keep yeah. it as uh, it is. I read there was a great quote, a great quote from Trevino. I read just this week somewhere that uh, he was asked about how he'd been so successful when in the stretch head to head against Nicholas. He'd been and Jack beat him, and Trevino. I'd have better than that interesting yeah well I, I think every player has got to believe it but like yeah. I only got to see Lee Trevino play at the end of his career just like Jack there were neither there weren't players when I got to see them play but by all accounts the, the way Lee Trevino hit the golf ball like was second to none in terms of the control and the strike on us I think Nicholas had everybody outdone that he had more power game and, and could do things that other players couldn't do. But Trevino yeah. just had a pure, 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 like a spinny strike, a pure strike in that sense. That, uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, I was just going to ask, you know, how much you think the uh, the changes in the equipment over the years have made to the teaching? Or has it made that much difference? Uh, yeah, the game has changed, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I think, you know, it is substantially different that, you know, if you turn up at a tournament and, and there's a par four that, you know, that a four iron has to be hit into because it's into the wind or, or say, God forbid, a, a wood has to be hit into it. Like, there's 20% of the field will go in and complain that they have to do that, you know, and it's the shore hitters complain. Mm. So they've to, you know, so at times, yeah, it's a weird one that the way the game... There's no big par fours anymore. There's nothing that can't be beaten, you know, with a perfect drive beats a hole nearly every time. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. Look, for me, the simplest thing was, you know, let them have another race with the golf ball. You know, dial back the specifications and let them, you know, each manufacturer will come up. I played the tightest ball. It's the best ball in the game. I believe that if you turn around and tell them, well, look, we're limiting this. Yeah. That they'll make the best ball because they have to. Titus only survives because they're a ball, they're a ball company. Yeah. If they, they're always going to produce the best ball. That's their their like TaylorMade won't survive unless they produce the best driver. That's their job, you know. So things like that. It seems simple. Like they've dialed back the ball before, just for the cost of golf courses, the size of them, the maintenance, the time it takes forever to get around the golf course. You add on every time you add on those yardages, you're walking back. Yeah. It's an extra like. They put a new tee box on uh, in Spyglass this year at PGA, and it was up the hill on the 11th uh, PGA Tour. It's probably 40 yards back, but it was up a hill. I timed it. It took a minute extra to play that hole. 40 mm-hmm. yards, it was up a hill. It was so much up a hill, you actually had to, it, you did actually have to rest a few seconds when you got up there, but it was an extra minute onto our time. You know, th- that's the point that, you know, the bigger the golf course, and look, I live in Dublin here, okay? If I go and play one of my local courses that I grew up on playing, it's dangerous. Because when I miss a fairway, I'm actually missing the dog leg, missing the trees and pitching it in the next fairway. You know, and there's plenty of kids at 20, mm-hmm. 25 per can hit the golf ball like me. Whereas when I was 16, 17, if I missed the same drive, it clattered into the trees. So it wasn't a health hazard. It wasn't dangerous. Uh, now, it's just, you know, like, it's... Uh, People get enjoyment, and this is an interesting one. I don't think people get enjoyment about hitting the golf ball past their playing partners. 
So if you play with the same guys and you hit it 320 yards and then one drive you hit 330, you'll get enjoyment out of the 330. Okay, if we dial it back and now you hit your drive 290 and you hit it 10 yards further, 300, you'll get the same enjoyment as if you hit 330 because it's 10 yards further. If you hit it 10 yards past the guy you shouldn't hit it past, you'll get the same enjoyment, whether that's 330 or 280. You get the enjoyment in the moment. We live life in the moment. They have shown this, that people who win the lottery after a year can be miserable. People who have had life-changing accidents after a year can be happy. You live life in the moment. And if, once we got used to the ball not going so far, the pleasure that amateurs get, they would get it by hitting 10 yards past their playing partner. They get it from striking the middle of the club face. They get it from loads of things. The same things, it's just referenced against yesterday rather than a year ago. Here, Pori, I just want to quickly double back what you were saying to earlier on about Bob being scared to waste natural talent. Uh, did you see the Chambly? Did you read the Chambly stuff last week? Having a real go at teachers for... I, I just, I only read, I actually didn't, I didn't get the, the, what he said. I got a lot of what was said about, and, and yeah, look, it, 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 this, in both sides, I think, in the end of the day, I think, it was one of those arguments that both sides were arguing something that they weren't quite on the same page, you know, that they, they were like, there's, there's no doubt that there's a lot of coaching. A lot of the coaching that's published is for elite players, which is, a, is, a, is a distraction for your average golf. No, I think I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that's what he was saying that, you know, hang on a second. There is a disconnect. Because as I don't believe any coach, I think the coaches are brilliant if individually people go to There's no doubt about that. You know, I, I don't know where he was going with it. No, well, what you, you pick the coach. But basically what he was saying, essentially, what, what he was saying, it, it, to boil it down, he was, had a real go at Cameron McCormick for essentially ruining Jordan Spieth. And he's saying that this is the, merely the most obvious example of a, of a modern trend where coaches are standing behind their guys and they feel the need to interfere I, I, and I only asked the question because you said that was Bob's great fear of, of not getting involved uh, well I've got to say right one of the best coaches and I'm, giving, I'm going to give away one of my secrets of when I played when I was playing at my best so and I've watched this with Butch Harmon so Butch you know the Butch the Harmon say he's not even the best coach in the family Right, they they joke about. It. Butch was a phenomenal coach, right? And I used to see him at majors because I used to play practice, play practice under Phil and different things at the majors. And this is I always had this with Bob as well because there was a constant, you know, at a major. If your coach turns up at a major, he'll stand there. And if your coach is there and you hit a bad shot, what are you going to do? You're going to ask him what you did, okay? And you're going to get in to start coaching at an, at a major tournament. You, tur- you don't coach at an major tournament. Butch Harmon would stand in the range and tell his players whatever they needed to hear to play well. That's all he would do. If it was a story, he'd tell them a story. If it was, that was a great swing, he'd say that was a great swing. If I've seen him on the golf course operate, and he was, br- he was the best at being, the best golf coach at being the psychologist. There wasn't too. There wasn't too needed with Butch. He was knew his place mm. at a major at the big event, not to get into the guys' heads, not to get you know to do 
to start telling them, working on this, become a crutch. You don't want somebody... When you're playing a major, you're out there on your own. You don't need a crutch on the golf course. And Butch was brilliant at it. Brilliant. I've seen him so many times telling stories. Somebody would ask him a swing story, ask them about their swing. And a minute later, he'd be telling them a story. And the guy would have forgotten that he made a bad swing. He'd be back into just hitting the golf. But he was like, you've got to admire it. He coached away from the event. And at the tournament, he was just there to keep the people in a nice, his players in a nice place mentally. And a lot of coaches struggle with that. A player struggle with it too. Bob Torrance struggled with it, but we had the coach. Bob couldn't even say good shot to me on the range at a major. I didn't want him to say, hey, Bob only told me stories at majors. That's all it was. Just nice stories. No coaching, because as you just said, it does become a crutch, and you don't have that crutch on the golf course. You want to just play golf. Here, we'll come on to the Ryder Cup, but just one last thing. Do you think you fiddled, or you, you jumped? I mean, you were with Bob until, I don't know, 2011, something like that. You went, I think you went to TPI. Uh, that, uh, you I think went you, to TPI in 2005. Was it? All right, so you were still working with Bob. Yeah. So, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going into something now, and I'm going to have my little rant here. I played better golf in 2009 than I played in 2007 and 2008. Oh, I played better, no. somewhat Sorry. better golf in 2008. <laughs> I, I'm going to have my little rant. And I actually played my best <laughs> golf, Pete Green, the first year I worked for Pete Count in 2012. Uh, but yeah, I had my struggles with the putting. I had my struggles with the, the groove changes, things like that. But I, I, I get frustrated when good coaches are good journalists say oh you changed your swing i didn't say I, that hang on i didn't say that i said i, no, I asked no, no, you i'm not i'm not i'm not having, i'm not having a rant at you i'm having a rant at the world at the moment that i know i created <laughs> the, I, I created the beat there's no doubt about it I, I i regret the fact i used to tell people that i was changing things working on things but brian joe posted something on twitter a few weeks ago about the 1994 <laughs> uh west of ireland it's in March, and the statements I made in the interview after I won it were the exact same statements I made in every tournament for the rest. I said, yeah, I've changed my coach. I'm working with this. I'm doing that. In college. I, I gave too much, and I got, you know, in many ways, I used to tell people, I, you know, I was devil's that. I, sh- I probably shouldn't have done it. I should have kept it to myself, but I used to tell people. But I changed from 2007, I played with a fade to... Sorry, 2007, I played with a draw to win the Open. And 2008, I played with a fade to win the Open. I was changing all the time, always searching and searching. The one thing that was constant with me is I kept changing. Uh, and, I, and to this day, I'm still that way. I'm still I'm changing right now. I'm still trying to find the answer when it comes to the, the ball striking and the long game. And in many ways, I'm running out of time. So, you know, literally, I, I really have to stop doing that. But... You know, it's very hard for a leopard to change his spots. So what you're saying is that, that change was normal for you. Uh, what the, the fact, you know, if you hadn't been changing, was, that's what would have been ab- abnormal. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. But I was changing every year. So I was changing 2005, 2007, 2008, 2009. Uh, I got frustrated in 2011 and finished with Bob. Uh, Bob was struggling to get out in the golf course because of his age. And I was hitting shots in the course. I started with Pete Town. But, like, very few people would know, like, I just, I had a phenomenal ball striking year in 2000, the best I've ever had in my career in 2012. <coughs> but I started putting badly and, you know, 
it doesn't matter who you are in this game. You you know, if you're not putting up there at some standard, it's uh, it eats into the, it eats into every part of your game. Here, uh, we better jump on Ryder Cup, I, I guess. Uh, we're not trying to trick you or catch uh, but, out. But before we get to Ryder okay. Cup, no, I, I would, I'd like to ask Patrick a bit about the Walker Cup before we get to yeah. he's got time for that. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued a bit by that, you know, this is a guy who very unusually played in three Walker Cups and then turned pro in the regular tour, not when he turned 50 like Wilsonholm did. But um, you're obviously you were quite late, quite late turning pro but t- t- talk to me a bit about or talk to us a bit about the your walker cup time i mean i'm, I'm intrigued a bit by the the 1993 team which i've looked at looked on paper really i mean since then i think 11 of the 12 of the guys made it onto the tour at least and maybe one tournament well, and yet you got absolutely maracad i mean what what was going on there uh, look it uh, it makes sense now the 93 we played in it's just an absolutely stereotypical U.S. golf course. Mm-hmm. It's like the Ryder Cup now trying to play, trying to beat the U.S. team in Medina. It was a miracle. Hazel team, uh, Valhalla. It is just, you know, it's tough for us to compete in their backyard, in their conditions. You know, when you go to that, really, they were really fast greens, heavy rough. I, I remember, I don't think any of our players knew how to play out the heavy. They would never have seen the rough around yeah. the greens. It was like six-inch six high rough it was it was just completely we were out of our depth in terms of conditions when you know and clearly it just showed they were good players mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it yeah it's tough tough those now the reason i played three walker cups is i didn't think i was good enough to be a pro mm-hmm. that's why I, I i i did night school and did accountancy with the idea of you know hoping to be in the golf industry uh, it was only by the time I got after probably after after seeing those guys in '93 probably turn pro and some of them get out there, I kind of had the attitude. Well, look, if these guys are good enough to turn pro and get out there, well, I think I can beat these guys. So I'm going to turn pro. And my ambition was to be a journeyman pro for five years, come back to Ireland, you know, and have that on my CV. Hey, this is a European Tour pro and and you know, manage a golf course or, yeah. you know, be in the industry because I love golf. But I, I never realized I would become as good as I did. I, even though at every stage in my career, I became the best. So when I was 15, I was the best at 15. When I was 18, I was the best at 18. Interestingly enough, when I went over 18, I did not make the top 20 juniors in Ireland. There was a team picked Wow. Uh, a panel for training. I didn't make the top 20 in Ireland. Now, I was the best in the country, but committees sometimes do some startling things. And I no, didn't make unheard of. Unheard of in amateur golf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I, know, I know how it works. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to explain how a committee works. Because, again, I never played the Eisenhower. Really? In, uh, in, yeah. in 93, this, uh, this is some, one of the reasons why Ireland broke away, I, I hope. Yeah. Uh, in 93, I, I did, there's 94, it must be, I hadn't lost a singles competition in Ireland over 36 holes or more in 18 months. So nobody had beaten me in stroke play. I led the European Championships. I hadn't lost a match for my country in the home internationals. I never played outside the top three in the home internationals. So I was beating the best players of the, and I didn't get picked. Now, this is how committees argue 
they throw the, the obvious people get picked at the start. And then the next section of people, so if you had eight people to be picked, ten people to be picked, the first four are ranked one to four. The second four, everybody's going to argue they're a fringe player at that point. Mm-hmm. So nine, ten, eleven, and twelve are likely to be picked in five, six, seven, and eight spots. And then they've only got two spots left for five, six, seven, and eight. So two are going to get left out, and everybody's going to come out of that meeting and say, that's not what we intended. That's not what I voted for. But they always going to argue for the fringe player that they're looking to get in early. And that knocks a guy out. So I've thought about this, and I hate committees. <laughs> I love... Yeah. I, I'm a big time into... I, I'm struggling for what, what this uh, 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 benevolent dictator is. Uh, like, you run your own show, and that's what I love about being a pro. I decide. I decide what I do. I have that authority. If I don't want to play, I don't want to play. If I want to work with this coach, I work with him. Committees do not. Yeah. No, well, I'm I'm of the opinion, Podrick, and this is a slightly cynical view, which probably won't surprise you, but... um, No. I don't think think they've ever picked the best Walker Cup team because there's too much parochialism or nationalism, whatever you want to call it, within the committee. You know, I don't think... If the best 10 players were all Irish or Welsh, or whatever, that, that would never be the team. No, no, because each player has at least one person going into the meeting yeah, exactly. that is not an obvious choice that they're fighting the corner for. Yeah, I mean, I, I, lived, I, I lived and played in that world a few years before you did, and some of the, the selectorial decisions were absolutely outrageous. The, I mean, Frank Coote, who's now the pro at D-side in Aberdeen, I mean, that he was not in the 1981 Walker Cup team is... Still an outrage. It still gets me angry. I mean, it's just a ridiculous decision. But anyway, there's plenty of them. Plenty of them. Plenty of examples like that. But everybody walking out of the meeting wouldn't have, would would go. Oh no, yeah, we didn't want it like that. But you know, they, they, it's amazing that they don't understand how. As I said, you will fight for your guy early. You won't wait until it's the last pick to try and fight for a fringe player. You'll have yeah. brought his name up well before that. Yeah, and it just pushes. An obvious player out, but yeah. committees. There you go. I at least don't have to deal with them now. So that's uh, yeah, yeah. one thing that I yeah. suffer. Yeah, yeah. which t- I mean, I'll let Lons take you into the Ryder Cup. But that it's an interesting thing you said about benevolent dictatorship, given the possible situation you might be in this year later on with the Ryder Cup. Yeah, before we go, I can't believe we're talking about uh, We're talking about. Right, uh, Walker Cup committees from the 1980s, Huggy. That's pretty yeah, bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. I knew he would be. He would. I knew he'd be sympathetic to that point of view because if yeah. you live in that world, you just you just shake your head at some of the stuff that goes on. The day before the Eisenhower was picked, I beat beat one of the players nine and seven. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ! Yeah, uh, party before we leave the Walker Cup '95 port call. Was that the first time you saw a Tiger? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, unbelievable, wasn't it? Just again. He, you know, even as good as Tiger was, he was thrown into an environment, you know, wet, horrible Lynx golf course. And it just, you know, it just didn't suit him. He was beatable that week. Now, clearly he learned how to play Lynx golf. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, you know, I, I know myself and uh, myself and Jody Fanagan played against him and foursomes. And, you know, after four or five holes into it, he was playing with John, uh, oh, John Simpson, John... Harris? John uh, Harris, John Harris. Yeah, John, sorry, John Harris. And, uh, you know, they were 
arguing going up the ferry on the fifth or not arguing but you know having a deep discussion and myself and Jody were walking behind him thinking yes we have him <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing better than when your two playing partners are starting to you know starting to get at it here Paul, did, I, I mean had you heard you guys heard, heard of him I mean it's not like now like Tom McKibben you know the Irish kid he's in America all the time but you know all these kids know each other uh, had you yeah I, I no, we we knew he was the, we knew he was a star, but we w- I wouldn't have known anything of how big you know I wouldn't have known he won three U.S. Junior titles and th- you know obviously followed up. I would have known probably that he'd won the three uh, the three U.S. Ams because I, I played one of them ninety three. So I don't know if he won that year, but anyway, yeah, he must have won that year. So anyway, ninety three, yeah, we would have known of him. We would have known he was the he was the star player coming over, but clearly. Nobody expected, uh, you know, what followed. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, it's strange, you know. We 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 see many times players being touted as the great great next star, and and tour pros. If you want to find a cynical bunch, tour pros, we 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 see them coming, and and you know we go, yeah, we'll wait wait to tour life gets hold of them and and see how they get on. But Tiger was well and truly able to, and Rory. You know, there, there's two real stars that have come out and, and shone, but it, it doesn't happen that often. No. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, like, if you were to show me two 16-year-olds and told me they were of equal talent, were as good as each other, and they both went out in the golf course and shot 66 and I got to watch them play. Well, the one who hits all the fairways and greens, he's the one who's not going to make it as a pro. The one who hits shoot 66, from being in the trees and a bit of this and a bit of that, he's got a great chance of making it as a pro because he's got imagination. He's got the, the, the gumption that it requires to get the, get the job done. The kid who's hitting fairways and greens, like if you're 16 years of age, and I hate to, tell, hate to be bringing this up, but if you're hitting 17 greens in regulation at 16 years of age, and there'll be plenty of them out there doing that, well, you ain't going to do it as a pro. You know, as a pro, you're going to average 14. So you're going to have to deal with missing more greens, more fairways, deal with that, you know, not being the best kid in the in the group, deal with some guy, you know, on certain days beating you by six and seven shots. And you're not going to learn that very well if you're very, you know, if you're very solid, consistent. If you don't have that fortitude when you're a teenager, it's hard to have it as a pro. Do either of you, do your kids play golf or are they interested? Uh, no. No. They don't have the... I'm trying to explain to my older son that when I was his age, 16 years of age, a Saturday night and a Friday night was in sitting cleaning my golf clubs and shoes waiting to get out the next morning. <laughs> you know, I, I had a... a, a that, that, that's what it was. I loved the game of golf. I was passionate about it. I, I thought about it and wanted to go play. I loved the competition. I played a lot of sports. I loved competition. But, you know, uh, you know, kids... Especially, it's very hard for any kid who comes from a well-to-do family to do well in golf or in sport because they have options. Yeah, You know, if you want to be a successful sports person, if you have a bad day and your only option the next day is to get back up and go again, well, you're likely to make it. If you come from a, you know, a, a good family, a well-to-do family, not a good family, you know, and you had a bad day. Well, the option maybe I'll go skiing next week. <laughs> you know, yeah. that ain't gonna. That ain't just, like, if you don't spend your three months of the summer stuck at a golf course, and are you stuck in the best possible way? You ain't going to be a golfer. 
you know, I bring my kids away with me on tour for the three months of the summer. Easter holidays, we go away. Whereas when I was a kid, no, you stayed at home and you played golf. And that's what makes you, you know, good at sport is, is you love it. There's no doubt a passion about it, but it's also your option, your only option. You live beside the facility that you use and you just can't spend enough time there. Yeah. I think I'm not sure which one of your kids we're talking about here, um, Podrick, but I walked a few holes in Dubai earlier this year with uh, with your wife uh, watching you. I don't know why I was watching you, but I was. Um, and she was telling me about uh, one of them's got a future as a writer because she showed me something that, he, that he'd written and it was very impressive. Um, <laughs> which, one is, which one are we talking about here and, and which one of you does he take after? But he certainly doesn't take after me. I, I'm sure, yeah, he, he, he obviously had a book project in school and he yeah. he, he won it. Uh, as it, He did win it with that book. And we, we we keep looking at him going, you know, how did that happen? I keep saying to my wife, well, I keep saying to my wife, well, we, we know he likes reading. And look, this lad would spend 24 hours seven on a video game. So we're not, you know, but he does like reading his imagination. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, he actually does learn stuff off YouTube. You know, he watches that enough, but he obviously is learning these big words and stuff. But yeah, I, I kept asking my wife, did you help him? Did you do that book? You know, but she's, no, we didn't. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's. Yeah, I was impressed. Yeah. It was good stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, but look, yeah. I, I think the problem you have again with, 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 with my kids and as I said, anybody who, who has this, an advantage in life is they end up being jack of all trades, master of none. Mm. You know, it's very hard to when you have so many options, so many things like my kids do music, they do rugby, they do golf, they do, uh, you know, they video games like everybody else. You know, it's one of the it's one of those things people think it's, it, you know, there's obviously an upside to having, a, you know, a well to do family parent. But there's also that downside that you do, you do lose that that focus and motivation. Yeah, um, listen, I'm very conscious of time here, Porik. We'll jump into the Ryder Cup. Uh, it's kind of I'm not asking you to break news or anything. We're not trying to trick you. Uh, what's what's happening? I mean, there's been all sorts of reports uh, put back a year. Uh, you're going to get 12 captains' picks. That'd be quite fun. No committee. Oh, wouldn't I love 12 captains? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe from this po- podcast, we can throw that out there. Yeah, yeah. I get 12 picks. That's it. No, look, I'm preparing. And believe it or not, I'm having meetings. Not every day, but quite a few meetings. I'd say every day I'm in contact, getting ready for this Ryder Cup, as is. Uh, now, obviously, there's, you know, in the planning stages, we're, we're, we're all go, but we have to look at things like supplies and stuff like that. You know the supply chain has been affected and and things, but it is. I am day to day getting ready for this Ryder Cup as is, and until you know we know more, something changes. That's what I'm going to do. That's the best thing I can do. You know, in in the end of the day, excuse me. <coughs> you know, there's nothing I can do different until we know more about the coronavirus and, and what that is doing, but at the moment is prepare as usual. It definitely has not been postponed. It definitely has not been. I am on the inside. It's one of the few times that I am on the inside and I it has not been postponed. We are working away. They're trying to figure out, be prepared with different mathematical models for, for how to 
do the the qualification. You know, they're sitting there looking, well, if we get back here, what are we going to do? Because remember, the points were meant to rank up to 1.5 points from the Irish Open. <coughs> oh, Lord, excuse me. No, there, there is no um, Irish Open, by the way. It's just been cancelled, sadly. Yeah, yeah not cancelled. Postponed. No, postponed, postponed, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, obviously, if, if we got back at some stage in June, that multiplier would have to be reduced. Or Yeah, they're all mathematical models. Uh, we'll we'll figure it out. We love to have a Ryder Cup this year, just to cheer everybody up and give everybody something to. Like it is a great sporting occasion. So let's hope it goes ahead as planned. Let's hope it's run, you know, and, and we can we can have everybody there to to enjoy, uh, you know, what golf has to offer in in its purest and best form, being the Ryder Cup. And you know, as I said, it is out of our hands in some ways, but that's what we're preparing for. What was your last meeting about, if it's not top secret? What was the last meeting you had? What was the subject? Well, the last thing I did, I had two things today with the Ryder Cup. I posted back a set of Ryder Cup rainwear that I had been trying out over the last couple of days, fitting-wise and seeing if it was waterproof. I posted it back to one of the guys for him to get in his shower with it on to make sure it's waterproof. <laughs> uh, so that was my last physical duty with the Ryder Cup. I have a meeting tomorrow with the Ryder Cup and the last big meeting was last week, uh, last Thursday. Uh, most of it was spent with me quizzing them to make sure that I'm, I'm, you know, that they don't have something up their slit, you know, because it was not far off after the, 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 the uh, Jamie Corrigan article. So I was quizzing them that I did know everything and that you know they weren't hiding anything on me but no it hasn't been postponed and uh, so we were going through so we basically went through what stuff if there's anything in the supply chain that they're that they're not worried about and what stuff they are worried about and what continues to have in place uh, to make sure we have all the stuff we talked about the mathematical modeling uh, and you know ideas what i would like in terms of you know gave, giving me a few structured ideas but none of the ideas can be you know, really uh, put put in well, none of them can be put in place. Obviously, until we know, you know, when we're back playing golf. Yeah, sorry, I'm being stupid. What's what do you mean supply chain? What what, what does that mean? Well, we have to get our well, okay, uh, golf bags. All right, okay, they're that's... actually okay. You know, clothing stuff like that. That that is what a Ryder Cup captain does. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't be thinking it's all nice stuff. I have to pick out. You'd be shocked how the details you have to go into. Team rooms, you know, whether they, you know, we what we're doing, what we're in terms of decking it out and and stuff. Uh, you know, can the guys do it? You know, is there an issue? Because obviously, you know, are they going to be too busy? Are they committed? Lots of stuff like that. It, it you know, it's it's obviously going to be a, a a new world for for certainly a while anyway. And just to make sure that we're we're all in place that when it when the we do get up and going that everything is in is ready to go as regards the actual team and stuff. I do still get stats, uh, you know, predictions and stuff like that. Not as personally, I'm not as into that at the moment. You know, I'm not, I'm not worried about who's, who's a good partner for who at the moment. Uh, that's way too early for me in that search, but there, there's, there's still stuff, as I said, uh, that can be, that is still being talked about and, 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 and done. I'm just going to ask you, what sort of captain Podrick thinks he's going to be? I mean, you've played under 
umpteen at you know amateur level, pro level. What have you? What, what do you how do you see yourself fitting in the, in the midst of all that nonsense? Yeah, it's that's something I've had to look at. You know, look at hard because, like, I, I think I would find it very easy to be the Bernard Langer style of captain, and you know, be authoritarian and tell mm. pe- you know want to tell people and be involved. But I know I have to be for some players. I have to be uh, warmer, a little bit, you know. And, and believe it or not, that actually starts well in advance. Mm. You know, I have to, I, I, you know, I, when I'm at a tournament, I'm very, I'm a very busy person. So, yeah, I, I nod and say hello to people, but I'm not somebody for stopping and having a chat. But, you know, with potential players, I do have to make that minute to stop and chat because, you know, you know, uh, you can walk by a potential player and you nod and he, he and he might read miles too much into it. He didn't stop and talk to me. I'd be running to try and get more practice in. So, you know, things like that, you have to be, I have to be a little bit softer, a little bit with, with definitely with players. And I remember in my team, there'll be players who I competed against. There'll be players who competed against me, but after me, who would look up to me. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be younger players who, who would hardly even, would never have played against me in my prime or whatever. So they, they have some ideas of me. So, there's different types of players and how they look upon you. And you, you have to deal with each. There's no one cap that fits all here. Yeah. You, you have to deal with each player individually. And that's the one thing I've seen over the years. Yeah, you've I've got had some great 12 captains. different captains, it sounds like. Jeez. Yeah, well, I've had some great captains. And, and I've told people, oh, he's a great captain. And another player would be sitting there listening and say, oh, he was terrible. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? He says, well, I got, I got totally left out. Uh, you know, he did this or did that. He... Uh, you know, I go really. I didn't know that. I I thought it was great, and and then you you find out more by asking, and, and understanding the players' experiences. And like, I I know, I learned more as a vice captain, much more as a vice captain than as a player. As a player, and, and I kind of agree with this as a player. You're really minding what you're doing as a player. Yeah. You don't know and see what's going. Like I, I remember one player telling me who would be closest. You know, he went out and played. His three practice rounds, they sent the vice captain out with him every day who he just picked to get into the team. Oh, so there was already acrimony between the two of them. Yeah. And he says, at one stage, this vice captain started giving him a lesson on the golf course. <laughs> and, and like this player is saying, this guy is going back reporting to the captain how I'm playing. And, mm. you know, it completely put him on edge. So, yeah, it... it, it it's in, there's there's lots of dynamics that you would never see other people's experience as a player, but as a vice captain, you definitely get more of a feel for what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and you you talk to captains, you talk to other people, and as I said, I've, I've played under enough good captains and bad captains over the years to try. I I will hopefully try, and, and I do have to work at it and and be a captain to all players in the team, uh, and not necessarily like. I love Bernard Langer coming onto the tee boxes and telling me what clubs were hit. And, and Bernard Langer, I always tell this story, we, the first team meeting after the, the Friday matches in the evening, it's, it's like his first, and we're sitting at a boardroom table, it makes it even worse, it was a big boardroom table, we're all sitting around it, it was like you were at school, and he, he's at the end of the table, and he turns, he says, right, we'll have nobody lay up into the bunk, into the ravine on number five tomorrow. <laughs> 
I think it was five. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Though. It might be an eight. not quite sure, though. But there was only one player who'd done that that day, and that was me. So <laughs> it was, yeah. I see. So, yeah. You know, that, that would be Bernard style. He yeah. get involved. And, and to be honest, I'd like to get involved with a bit of golf stuff in the Ryder Cup. A little bit of advice here and there. But I also know that there's certain players that there's no way I'm going to go up to and tell them what I think. They're good enough. They should know now. And they're, actually, they're all good enough. But there'll be one or two of the rookies that I'll say, hey, I've seen this in the Ryder Cup before. And, you know, I will ask players if they want, you know, every player will be asked, do they want to know what other players hit on a certain par three? Some players will say no. And one or two players will go, hey, actually, I would like to know what, you know, guys who are hitting four and have gone long or, you know, that sort of advice. You mentioned of Bernard Lang. I, I, I don't want to join the chat nostalgia trip. I know you've got other stuff to do, but the, you played, you and Monty played, the, you were there for the Woods Mickelson thing. That, I mean, what was that like? That must have been just insane. Yeah, you know, I, I got the feeling, and, you know, because we talked about this afterwards. Phil Mickelson is, like Monty, is a natural playing captain in the team room. So the players like Phil. They turn to Phil for what's Phil doing, what's Phil saying. We'll follow Phil, right? But Phil struggled to do that because Tiger was the better player. So Phil couldn't stand up in the team room and do his natural thing because Tiger was the better player. But Tiger's not interested. wasn't interested in that. Tiger is a golfer. He's not interested in, in what went with it. So there was always an issue in that team room when you had the two of them, you know, Phil didn't want to do what he was naturally good at. Monty was brilliant at it for us. No, but I'm just talking... Monty was... I know the match. Yeah. But I'm just... The dynamic between them already in the team room, that, you know, best of them in the best of will, just... It just... It was never going to work on the golf course either. Because (laughs) you don't... You need a a lot of partnership. Uh, Well, this is not for set in stone, but you'd like to have a captain in your team of two. Mm. So when like, often when I played with uh, Ross Fisher, it worked really well. I, I was picked. He was playing great golf. And like I'd say to Ross, look, I'm going to cover everything. You know, if they want to drop, I deal with it. If, they, if we want to drop, I deal with it. I talk to the referee. I do this. I do that. You just play golf. Very straightforward. Whereas when you put Tiger and Phil, well, who's, who's leading it? <laughs> who's deciding? Who's, you know, you've got two, two captains. Now, I know friends have worked before on the golf course and uh, like I can only best explain it like this. Myself and Paul McGinley played the World Cup obviously very successfully in 97. But he was the captain in 97. He took all responsibilities. He said, he did and told us like, I, to, to such a great extent, we stayed in an apartment with our two wives that week and uh, every evening I'd be doing a bit of practice and like, We'd say, right, we'd be back at six. It'd be dark at quarter to six, say. We'd be back at six for dinner. And McGinney would insist every night, no, we're going to go and have a drink now. And we'd go up and we'd have a Coke. I'd be drinking Coke. He'd be drinking Coke, whatever, with the two caddies. And we'd arrive back in late every night, a half, six, quarter to seven. But he was the captain. That's what he did. And that's what we did. But as we progressed, so in other World Cup years, as I became a better player, it didn't work. There was no captain anymore. We were friends, yes. But I didn't... I wanted to call this... Not that I wanted to call the shots, but I, I, I was possibly a better player than Paul at this stage. So now there was there was no dynamic. 
we didn't play anywhere near as well over over the years after that. You sometimes need a leader in your team. They didn't have a leader on the golf course that day with the two guys together. They don't ha- didn't have a leader in the team room like like a Monty. When I partnered Monty, right? Like I I consider myself a good golfer, but when I partnered Monty, my sole job on the golf course was make Monty play well. Whatever it took to get Monty to play his best. I would massage that man's ego oh, as best I all the way around. Every, if, if he turned to me in the middle of the round and told me he wanted a, a, a latte, I'd have run and got it for anything he wanted. But I knew my position. I knew my position when I was playing with Monty. Just keep him happy. Let him play the golf. Yeah. Play a couple of good shots here and there to back him up. And that, that is, that's the dynamic you're looking for. And, and the interesting thing about that the dynamic can change you know like we like you'll see it with partnerships that worked one year or two three times and then they die off and it's because you know the leadership dynamic can change in any in any two players yeah I, I think you're being slightly modest with your Monty stuff here because I watched you at the at Oakland Hills in 04 when you were playing with Monty and he called a couple of really long putts, I remember, early on in one match and basically disappeared for the rest of the day. I mean, you basically carried him round. He was playing an absolute load of rubbish. But, uh, but yeah, you won, you know, so there's... Oh, absolutely. I mean, and he, and he you know, later on that week, he, he scored, he was playing well enough to win the winning point. But the the, the match I'm thinking of, it, it was all you after he told a couple of early, you know, bombs. But after that, it was uh, it was the Harrington yeah, show. But, that. I know, but... But this is what happens. Like if, when I played with Ross Fisher in, in 210 in Wales, he played all the golf. Mm. All the golf. He was like a machine the way he played. He just phenomenal. But the reason, part of the reason why he played like that is he w- was relaxed about what he had to do. As in, yeah. you know, everything was taken out. All the, the rubbish that could go on. And remember, it was messy in, 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 in Wales. There was free drops. I remember so many good stories. I, you know, I remember in one match with, with Ross, uh, the US guys, we were like two up with three to play. It, the match was over. We were running holes out. That's all we were doing. And the second, we were at 20-footer on the par three. Is it par three 16th in Wales? If, is that right? I'm thinking, oh. it, thinking I've got this. I've right. 17, anyway. 17 is the par three. Okay, so it must, we might be two up with two to play. And one of the US guys, I'm not going to name him, misses the green. It took the casual water, which was everywhere. So he just had to drop. I'd say it took 10 minutes to take that drop because of the measuring and going on. Whereas if it was a regular event and a guy went, this is what's different between a Ryder Cup and a regular event. If it was a regular event and my plane, my plane partner turned to me and says, I've got casual water, I would wave at him from 20, 30 yards away and say, yeah, you know what you're doing. Work away. Whereas in the Ryder Cup, referees have to be called. Everything has to be measured. It was it was startling. I was just thinking to myself, that's the difference in a Ryder There's so many things that are made serious in the Ryder Cup. Mm. And as I said, a rookie could get caught up in that. Whereas I was a senior player. I knew, I thought Ross Fisher would never have left that green that day. He would have stood in the green, waited around. I probably chatted to him for most of the time as the referee came and did all the stuff that needed to be done. Yeah. But the re- you know... In a normal game of golf, you would, yeah, yeah, just work away. You're a pro. You know what you're doing. Yeah, but you're dead, right? Especially in foursomes, I think you, you've got to recognise your role and then be able to play that role within the, the little yeah, team. Yeah. Mm. 
and formal, and formal. Like yeah, more enforce them though, because it's you can go and, you can go off and do your own thing in four ball to an extent that you can't do in four. Yeah. Well, one of my Walker Cups, I was thrown in with a guy, and we got in the first tee. We played no practice rounds, and he said to me, he said to me on the first tee. I don't like to talk on the golf course. <laughs> and I'm the guy who, I just, I, I was incessant in talking. I wanted to chat. Yeah. And like, it's like, so yeah, it, 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 you're 100% right in foursomes in, in form. There is parts to be played and but you have to be comfortable in your part. Yes. And, and this, this, it, this is, this is why we've done well in, in the Ryder Cup. You look at Seve and David Guilford. You, hmm. Europe has really strongly got our senior players to put their arm around the rookie and the rookie plays the golf it's never the senior it's the rookie who plays unbelievable because he's been managed by the senior player and for some reason like Ross Fisher literally believed every line I gave him on the greens at Celtic <laughs> Man and yeah. like I, I couldn't put it in a bucket and I'm telling Ross and he thinks yeah that's it and he, he holds everything I just like wish I had that belief in myself that he had in me but that's that's I suppose what a bit of seniority does in, in those sort of situations Here I, we'll, we'll wrap this up Pori uh, one thing I want to ask you uh, I, I, Huggy you never gave me an answer I, I texted Huggy last night uh, any uh, Ryder Cup captains have had great careers after being a captain uh, 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 can you think of L- any Langer Langer's the only one Langer's the only one I mean uh, but hang on a Bernard Langer is special yeah okay mm. Yeah. Okay. The man probably has a resting heart rate rate in the thirties at the moment, like and all his life. Like we're we're talking somebody who is who is I, I used to put him I put him up there in a pedestal as, as the role model, the professional's professional. But wow, like that is like the dedication and work ethic is is oof. it is it he is not breaking any stereotypes, put it like that. He is exactly yeah, I, I it's hard to believe anybody can Keep it, keep up the pace he has kept for as long as he has kept it. Uh, fair play to him. So, I, I, as what? Well, the question is, I mean, how do you see? I mean, if if I was to talk of your career in the past tense, would that really bug you? I mean, the question, the question being, do you think well, you've you got a, a good career ahead? I I wouldn't bug me because I'd be trying to prove you wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and look, I have to. Some days I, I, I'm fatalistic and I will point out that, you know, yeah, look, I can't wait for this Champions Tour to come around. Other days I'm enthusiastic. I'm, I'm very enthusiastic when I'm working on the game. I'm, like if I go press and I'm very enthusiastic and then it's the easiest way for me to get over any stress or bad thing is to go and look forward. I My caddy has given me a few lectures in the recent months that I'm running out of time that I can still compete and win now, but I can't put it on the long finger and and not do the right stuff to get me playing right now. You know, 20 years ago, I would always work for the future. And he's trying to point out, well, two years time, three years time, you're not, you're not, you're going to be finished playing. So you can't work for some date down the road. You've got to work for now. So whatever makes you play well this week, you should be focused on it. And believe it or not, this is a very, very sad thing for me. I, I can't get away from it because this is my personality. But I know several things that make me play well in the short term. 
but I'm so attracted to doing things that tr- that I believe will make me play well in the long term. And that, that's my personality. It's always been that way. I can't get away from it. We're all we're all stuck in it. But my caddy is trying to talk me out of it and get me into doing the stuff that uh, is more short term focused. Which I I believe I still can compete at the moment because like physically I'm up to it. Uh, I don't put with these guys put so well. Yeah, it's just it's amazing how well they put out there. You know, the, the, the years ago, like they all know how to read the greens well now. They don't have the biases because you know, and their putting strokes are technically better. And and especially in the PGA Tour, that's a big difference in the European Tour and the PGA Tour. If you go to the range on a Thursday and Friday afternoon on the PGA Tour, there will be I go I will go. There'll be three or four players max on the range. But the putting green will be full. You go to the range in the European Tour on a Thursday and Friday afternoon, it will be full. As in, the guys in Europe are, are technically more proficient. They have a certain chip on their shoulder that, not a chip on their shoulder, they have a certain attitude. They're still thinking that they're that this isn't the peak, this isn't the pinnacle, that they're still trying to improve. Whereas guys, guys in the PGA Tour believe they've arrived and they're only interested in playing well at the moment, you don't have a lot of players who are thinking, I'm, I'm trying to get ready for five years down the road or 10 years down the road on the PGA Tour. They, they're there and playing. And that, and that means when you're in that frame of mind, you're, you're going to spend more time getting the pace of the greens that week, more time working on your putting and chipping and, and the scoring things. Whereas if you're in the frame of mind of, like a lot of guys in Europe, you know what, if I keep working at this, I'm going to be good in five years' time. I'm going to win majors or then you'll you'll spend more time working on your weaknesses, whatever they are. So I take it Ronan's telling you to get to the putting green, spend more time in the putting green. Is that what you're? Believe it or not, he's telling me to to to, to you know to do the good stuff, and and which sometimes is believe it or not rest. You know, I I can't keep going at it the way I go with it, and he's, you know, I, uh, I know myself. I don't have many. I I don't have real regrets in golf, but. If I know the amount of times I had a chance of winning on a Saturday evening a tournament, and I closed the driving range that evening, like I literally closed, I closed the driving range every night. But when I had a chance of winning, the amount of times I did it, and ended up swinging the club, hitting the ball better the next day, but not scoring as well because I was, you know, mentally not as strong. Uh, you have to look to Monty, Monty, and I tell the young lads this. I'm going to put it out there. Monty prepared for Sunday, whereas I always prepared for Thursday. There's a big yeah. difference. Monty was fresh on a Sunday. Yeah. The amount of times I would have gone out on Sunday and I was I was like dead from the amount of work I'd done all week. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But the perfect example of Monty, and it's not one that he, where he actually he actually ended up winning, is at Congressional in '97. I happened to bump into him before um, he went out to play on the Sunday when he was in the last group. You know, with Ernie, and uh, he asked me where the range was. He had no idea where the range was. He hadn't been there all week, and he was leading the U.S. Open. So. It's, it's, you know, I've got to say, with Monty, he, he's somebody I, I tried from a distance. I know, I don't know, close study him because there were so many magnificent things he did, mm. and some terrible things as well. Like you know, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not talking. I'm talking pure golf here. I'm talking yeah, yeah, like, yeah. purely like. He was best ball striker in the game. Uh, like, if he came onto the range beside me, I'd have to move. And he used to deliberately come, because he liked talking to me. I liked talking to him. But he'd yeah. come and put his golf balls beside me. And he'd start talking. 
<laughs> and I, I just wanted to practice. This is before you go out. I'd have to pick up my balls and leave because Monty would hit 12 golf balls before he played. I'd have hit 100, 100 golf balls in the same period. He just chilled out and that really, it puts you in a great place for Sunday. But clearly when, if you're, if you're not in that place on Sunday, you need to do some work to get there. And so, yeah, he, he wouldn't have had that that he didn't have that work ethic he wouldn't have known what was I, I think ultimately in Europe Monty walked around like he was the champion and he puffed out his chest and everybody mm. had to come and beat him and it was only when Lee and, and Darren started challenging him that was the first time that he had a challenge he used to get in the leaderboard in Europe and like he feel like everybody on that leaderboard would run scared when they'd see him where he'd get in the leaderboard in the States and, you know, he'd look up there and it'd be Justin Leonard and Davis Love and he'd feel like, oh, they don't care. Because mm. remember, when he played in the States in regular events, they'd put him out last or out first. Yeah. He'd be treated... In Europe, he's treated like a star. In the States, he was treated horrendously in mm. that... In the sense of... of Monty, Monty needed his ego massage. To, he needed to... Like, there's stories about Monty, you know, playing tournaments where... Uh, with, when Tiger was there, you know they check into the official hotel that the tur- sponsor in the event, and of course they've given Tiger the penthouse suite, the president suite. So Monty would leave the hotel and go next door to another hotel and pay for his room in <laughs> order to have the best room in the hotel. Yeah. You know, but but that's players need that. Like I know if you turn around and give me a big fat appearance fee to go to go to Asia. And then I turn up in Asia and my name's on the billboards in the city, flags and billboards. And I'm brought around to, tr- I have, you know, if you're paid, you have to do work. So I do two or three dinners where they go, hey, look, we've got Padraig Harrington here. That's all massage my ego. I will play better because of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you go to the States and you go, you know, even if you're a big star, Rio Ishikawa, you go there. Eventually, you know, when they stop looking at you, it gets on you. You get start getting bad tea times or whatever wears you down it's easier to play good golf when you're when you're the star than it is when you're when you're not and, and Monty yeah. would have definitely suffered that yeah good the, and bad the shame with Monty is that you know America you keep hearing especially from Americans about how he didn't win in America which he did because he won the World Cup individual but he didn't win yeah. PGA Tour but I, I don't want to hear it because you know he had reasons for playing as much as he did in Europe mostly financial I suspect but had he gone to America full time just before Tiger appeared, not only would he have won tournaments, I reckon he would have topped the money list. Such was the the high level of performance that he was on at that time. Uh, look, he was the best in the world. Mm. He was the best golfer in the world at that period of time. I think your the issue he, he he had was he needed to go to America and become a home familiar that's why i went to america in 2004 i realized i needed to familiarize yourself you go over and play a one-off event in america now this is back in the days it's better now because there are like a european good european player will play 12 times but back in the day you might have played the four majors and maybe Mm. one or two other events every time you went there you had every rep every person you hadn't seen every come up and talk to you and and you know every time it's just that's a distraction but if you played there, you get to a major, it's just a regular event. How's yeah. everybody? I, I, I played last week, I played this week. You just nod and move on. It, it's amazing the difference between playing regularly and how you feel comfortable in the environment than going one-offs. One off. Now, European players, you don't need to go anymore. 
And I would say to a lot of European players, nearly them all, you're better off being a big fish in a small pond and improving your game and being a champion and winning regularly and then going to the States with your winning game than going over to the States. The States is very deep. You'll play over there and you'll, you could win tournaments. You could compete, but you're not going to compete or win anywhere near as often. And I, I would prefer to be a winner going into a major than having had a top 10 going into a major. And that could be the reality at times. Like a good player in Europe probably will get in contention 10 times in a year. A good yeah. player in the States might get in contention twice. That, so, kind, of, that kind of begs the question, Padraig. I mean, wh- where do you rank your US PGA Championship victory in the, in the three majors that you won? What's, what's one, two, three? Uh, there are three different ones. And, and the first one, your first is always special. You mm. cannot take it away. Your first is no doubt special. But because I messed up the 72nd hole, it left something wanting. My second being Berkdale in 2008, I won that like you would dream of winning it as a 15-year-old kid. I played great. I swung the club great. I came from the wrong side of the draw, so I had adversity. I had the big draw at the end. I was the favourite going out. I hit the golf ball. I hit some spectacular shots. I won by four shots. I got to wave. It, 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 you wouldn't write, write it any better. You wouldn't dream it any better than the way it went. And it was very satisfying. You know, satisfying, as in it wasn't anywhere near as exciting or anywhere near uh, like the first one being so special. It was satisfying. It kind of validated the first major win. If anybody had a doubt, which people would have, uh, you know, because you do, when you do mess up the last hole, people will question it. But birthday of validating. My third win, and it came very quick. I was sick that week in uh, Oakland Hills. I, I, I got dehydrated because it was so close. Even though I was disciplined, it was so close to the win. Look, I was flat out a couple of times in the golf course. As good as I was hitting the golf ball and swinging the golf, I hit some horrific golf shots because of lack of coordination when you get dehydrated. So I played literally for four days. With, well, the two weekend anyway, I played with the fear of God in me. Because I had some misses in me that week, and I, I every time I stood over the ball, I actually thought I could hit it anywhere. Now I, I, I didn't at times, and I, I, I but I, I, I played every golf shot like I was scared out of my wits for the whole weekend, and you know I threw everything I had at Sergio because I played with Sergio, which even though we were we weren't the last group, I threw everything I had at him for like maybe thirty. 35, 32 holes, and thirty maybe about 30 holes of the, of, of the last two rounds. And like, I just looked over, I think, at that stage, and it's just that, you know, he's playing well, but the difference was every time he made a mistake, he recovered. He was getting good breaks and hitting good shots. So, like, it just looked like it was his event. I, I had given up. Weird. Not given up, but I, I really had thought, no, that's it. It's his. It's his. And on the 16th hole, I wasn't even watching him. Like, up to that, I'd watched every shot he hit. You know, I was into it. I wasn't even watching him. When he hit it in the water, now he, he, he was hitting a long club in. He was very conservative off the tee. Uh, I, I think he could have been hitting at least a six iron, maybe even down to a five or four. He dunked it in the water. I wasn't watching the shot. I had totally, like, I just had assumed he was going to go on and win. I got such a shock. I was hitting nine iron in. I got such a shock. I actually, it threw me completely out of my 
plate and I hit it like 40 yards left in a bunker. Mm. Now I got up and down and Sergio got up and down, which fair play to him. It was like he got up and down from 50 yards over the water. You know, I, I then went on. I hit a great shot at the next. He hit the better shot. I hold the putt. He misses. So on the 18th, he's actually out of it now. He's, he's two shots back or a shot back. Uh, certainly on the green, I remember I was knocking this put in to knock everybody at the field out, not Sergio. He was kind of out of my thinking. But I always look at that tournament as one I stole. I just stole, I came in at the right time, at the right, timed it right and just grabbed it. I grabbed it by the scruff of the neck. It was ugly. I grabbed it. And I won one that I shouldn't have won. So I have one that was exciting. I have one that was satisfying. And I have one that I just absolutely stole. And you know what? When you get one like that, when you get one that you weren't meant to get, it's all the more enjoyable. But, guys, I had three parts to win the Open. Or, sorry, three parts to win the US Open in 2006. Yeah. yeah. And played them well and lost. I had, I was leading the Open in 2015 and lost the golf ball. Tell me, anybody who, well, I suppose, uh, the English lad, Matt, uh, uh, Gary, Gary Evans. He Gary Evans, yeah. Yeah, Muirfield, yeah. I was, I was leading 59 holes. I was leading the Open in 2015. I had a birdie down the last to get in a playoff in the uh, 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 Olympic Club in 2012. Yeah. Webb Simpson won. Yeah. And bear in mind, I had a birdie to win that. I had a four put and two three puts during that. I had the yips. And had a birdie to win the tournament <laughs> to get into a fail. So I, I've had good majors. The three majors came pretty quick. And yes, I would have been far better off in my career if I won a major in 2005, 2010, and 2015. It would have been a lot simpler. Uh, but to be honest, my good form was spread out over a longer period of time. It just happened that the wins all backed into each other. And I think you find, I, I used to say it about everybody else, but I, I have to say I fit into this. And you could do the, you can do the homework on this. I believe that every player gets a purple patch for about 18 months as a professional golfer. And if you watch all the careers, guys, good players, they might be, they could be a top 20 player and turn into a, 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 a top 50 and turn into a top 20, a top 20 and turn into a top 10, top 10 turn into world number one for 18 months. And unfortunately, after the 18 months, they actually regress behind where they were before the 18 months. You look at the amount of guys who play great into Ryder Cups. Uh, you know, everybody gets 18. Like Tiger had four majors in one, at one stage. Yeah. You know, yeah. everybody has a period where it's just things are going for you. Things fall into place. Uh, and the game is just that little bit easier. Yeah, Marco Mio would be a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, look, you will not, I tell you what, you can go and find me a player, you would struggle to find me a player that hasn't had 18 months where the game was just easier. And it only lasts that amount of time uh, where things just fall into place. Here, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be right, but that's fun. So why is that? Eight, why, why, I mean, what happens? What's the, what's the alchemy of that? I I really looked at this. Uh, you know, I've tried to look at it. Uh, I, I hate to say this, that okay, it's you. A player is on form. He's coming into form. He's a good player. Now, it might be a player who's who. You could have a player who every year is struggling to heat their card, and then they have the year eighteen months where they win a couple of win maybe once or twice in the eighteen months. They finish 
top 15 in the order of merit, top 10. So it's it, every player. Just, yeah. So what is the I think good things happen. And then when good things are happening. So uh, I, I try and explain this to people. If, if I've got, if I'm going to win the tournament by four shots and I've got a 10 foot putt for par, well, I'm going to win it by four or three shots. Now, I'm saying I have a 10 foot putt now in the first round. But I know I'm going to win this tournament. I've got four or five shots to spare. Well, the chances are I'm going to hold that putt because good things are happening and I know it's not absolutely imperative. I'm still going to win the tournament. I'm still going to have a chance of winning. I still. Now, if I think I'm on the edge of winning this tournament and I need everything to go for me to win and I've got that 10 footer, I'm probably going to miss it because I don't feel like I can take that, absorb that miss, that punch. When you feel like you can't, like look at Rory in 2011. He walked on the tee box and literally he knew if I play my game, nobody can beat me. Now he would walk on the tee box. He actually could be getting back to this other state of mind. But certainly over the three, four years ago, he'd walk on those tees and he'd go, if I play my game, I just have to be careful that Bubba doesn't play his best. He's looking over his shoulder. What if DJ's on form? What if Jordan's on form? Whereas in 2011, he didn't care who else was on form. He knew he was winning if he played his golf. And that relaxed you. DJ, two, three, two years ago, was very much in that boat. He start, Remember, he became a good pitcher and he started holding putts. Mm. But the reason he was holding putts is because he had one on every green. If I've got a 15-footer for birdie on every hole, I'm going to hold my, I'm going to relax and hold a lot of them. Because, you know, it just gets easier when you have, when you have, Room to spare. Yeah, so but but, but last but, way of, I've got one one more way of explaining this. So, if I turned up and played, uh, say we played a say we played say we were going to play the Irish Open. So uh, let's yeah let's pick the let's pick the what event have I played this year? So it's got a can't even say we were going to play the Irish Open. So if I turn up and play against the European Tour pros on the Irish Open golf course. Same tea time, same conditions all the way through. Well, I'm going to worry that, hey, you know what? I really got to, I can't afford to miss too many putts. I can't afford this, that, or the other all the way through. So maybe I shoot, with this hypothetically say, I shoot level par for the week, okay? And clearly I don't win 10 unders winning, okay? Now, if I turned up the same week, same conditions, same tea time, everything the exact same, but I was playing against the Irish PGA pros, right? Where... I pretty much believe that no matter what I do for the first 63 holes, I'm going to have a chance of winning with nine holes to play. Okay? I guarantee you I will shoot better than level par for those four rounds. Same conditions, everything the same. But I'm in an environment that I'm more comfortable. I'm a big fish. I'm more relaxed. I know I'm going to be in contention at the end of the day, no matter what happens. And that's the 18 months. You just, good things are happening. You see it. Guys will start off with three bogeys and then they make six birdies. Whereas when the things aren't going well for you, you start off three bogeys, all you're thinking about is the cut and you end up shooting another three bogeys and you might as well pack up on a Thursday. But you will go out and play on the Friday because you're a professional. But, you know, that's the difference. It's pure comfort zone. It's but, pure. And I don't mean, com- I, I, I use the word comfort zone and people miss you. It's how, how big a fish you feel like you are. And, you know, you get that for a period of time. But what ends it? <laughs> Reality. 
You know, you miss a couple of putts. You know, this it's it's there's there's no physical difference in the player. There's no way that you could say he was a better swinger at the golf club. Those things, those you miss a few putts, you miss you you miss a cut or two, and you start trying harder. I tell you who was broken, and I'm fascinated with this. Really fascinated, and and he's completely broken my my 18 month time scale. Tommy Fleetwood, phenomenal. Like Tommy Fleetwood, three three years ago, he struggled. This is a guy three four years ago. You know he struggled on the European tour. You know he he was a really bad putter. He, he didn't chip particularly well. He's always found hitting the but he, I thought he always found hitting the ball well, but he'll tell you he had the, the driver yips at some stage. And now look at him. He has sustained it. I'm very impressed with him. Very impressed how, how long he's... But maybe maybe he hasn't had his 18 months, and maybe his 18 months will be two or three majors. But that's impressive. He, I, I have never seen... Pros don't change their golfing personality. When they come out at 22... Whatever speed they have, I've never seen somebody really gain speed. I've never seen somebody change their golf and personality. But Tommy Fleetwood has become a different player. Like he has gone from being a middle of the pack average European tour player to being a world beater and sustained it now for two and a half, three years at least. Yeah, like I mean, that, you're, that. you're right. I mean, he almost lost his card two or three years ago. I mean, he just kept it the That's last the minute. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, Cynically, as a pro, I would have said, oh, well, he's having a good run, you know. But no, he, he's gone past that 18 months. He's, he's probably now into into guts of three years at it. Uh, I, I am I am really impressed. And it, it's very difficult to do, as I said, to sustain that, uh, to change who you are. Like, look at the world number ones. Look at the different things. You'll see how they got there and they lasted a while. But then they reset back and maybe even reset further back than, than they started off. Uh, I think somebody like I'm, I'm fascinated with Dave Allred. Yeah, he brings seems to be able to bring it out. You know, get a guy who's on the up to get to that peak very quickly. I think he's brilliant. I've worked with Dave, and I've seen other players. I don't know if guys who have gone down the other side of the peak has he brought them back. If you know what I mean, but he's definitely got the guys to peak. Uh, you know, to to. Ex- to get to that point, maybe they would have got there eventually themselves, but he has got them there quickly. It's impressive what he did with Luke Donald, what he did with, uh, uh, obviously with Frankie. It's, it's you know, uh, so there's a way of maybe getting to your peak, but again, sustaining it just seems to be, which clearly, if it's a peak, it can't be sustained. So it yeah. wouldn't be a peak <laughs> if it was sustainable. That's a very good point. Yeah. Here, um, Dave Orr was one of the Performance coach is one of my favourite subjects, but we'll we'll leave it there, Paddy. Huggy, I think we've got news. Uh, Tommy Fleetwood to stick on for the Ryder Cup. Uh, I think we yeah, can. Yeah, well, I think you're, I think that's a safe bet. <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, Porig, uh, that's been an hour and thirty-five minutes. That's uh, again, that's really generous of you. Uh, listen, keep up with the uh, Twitter uh, swing stuff. It's uh, people are loving it. Yeah. Uh, good to talk to you. Nice talking to you guys. I'm 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 about to do shoulder turn tonight. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. See you okay. soon. Cheers. Bye. See you guys. Thanks.
Then I realized it's a wide open.